Okay, Ruth 1 is where we're going to be. The book of Ruth, chapter 1. If you got a phone, Google it. Grab, uh, grab the blue paperback. Grab any of them. Ruth 1, it's on page 160. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And yes, I did just do that to show you how smart I am. So we're going to be in the book of Ruth for four weeks. Our habit at Regen is to preach the whole book of the Bible. We've not done that in a little while, so I'm excited about this. The book of of Ruth, and it, and it begins with this, and then I'll pray. Look at the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their sons were Malin and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the other one named a woman, a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malin and Kilian died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Let me pray. Hey God, thanks for your word, and uh, that's something I say almost every week, but I mean it. I'm so thankful that for those of us just getting into the Bible, um, there's so much there for us to just grab, but uh, for those of us who have been in this text for a lot of our lives, um, some of us in the room longer than it, some of us have been alive, but God, you continue to speak through it. So yeah, challenge us, God, invite us, equip us, speak to us so that we can uh, faithfully know you and experience your presence. Um, God, wherever the nature of the word the Lord is spoken of, there he is present. So be present here. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine a world in like utter chaos, which for some of us, like right now, it feels that way. Like our world is like, yeah, that is now, right? Uh, and if you can think of a world that is just falling apart at the seams, you can resonate with this opening line in Ruth 1, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel. The days when the judges ruled in Israel was not a great time in the history of God's people. In fact, it was one of the absolute worst. Uh, the way it's described is it says, the text says in Judges that at this time, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so utter chaos has overtaken the land of Israel. Moses leads the people out of Egypt into freedom, into the land that God had promised them, the land of Israel. Under Joshua, they conquer a good part of that land. And then Israel is left without a leader except for a series of judges, men and women, that we read about in the book called Judges. Now, here's the thing about the book of Judges. It's exactly like the movie Groundhog Day. Have you seen the movie Groundhog Day? It's the same thing over and over again, right? That's exactly how the book of Judges is. So what happens is you have a righteous Israel serving the Lord faithfully, and then they start to notice their neighbors are worshiping another God. So they worship that God and Yahweh, and then they only worship that God. And suddenly they are found to be oppressed by or subjugated by, even enslaved by their neighbors in the land, the Ammonites and the Perizzites, all those ites you read about in the Old Testament. And, and so then they cry out to the Lord for help because they are in need. And the Lord raises up a judge, a man or a woman, a man or a woman. And uh, that judge gets them free of that captivity and 
they walk righteously with, with the Lord for like a generation and then it all happens again. There's like a dozen or more cycles of this in the book of Judges. Like if you go home and read it, if you read half of it, you read the whole thing. Things are good, we worship other gods, things get bad, we call out for help, God saves us, things are good, we start worshiping other, it happens over and over again. And against this backdrop, of chaos. I mean, I, I had an Old Testament professor in grad school say that in the cesspool of judges, on the top of that water floats a beautiful lily, and it is the book of Ruth. Not only is Israel at, at this point in chaos, famine has overtaken the land. Uh, this is something that we don't really fully understand how terrifying it is, but there's no food anywhere. And so a guy named Elimelech with his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, leave the land of Israel to go to their neighboring country, Moab. Uh, it would be about as far from here as to, I don't know, central Pennsylvania. It wasn't that far. They go there looking for food, but they only just get settled, everything they get figured out, and then soon after, Elimelech dies. This is bad. This is awful. This is terribly sorrowful for Naomi, but the good news is that she's got two sons and they're obligated to care for her under kind of the cultural norms of the day. And so each of the sons get married to Orpah and to Ruth, two Moabite women, and all is well for about 10 years uh, until Malon and Kilion die. And now Naomi is a single woman with two, single women, two daughters-in-law entirely dependent on her in a culture uh, that is totally unfriendly to women. And by the way, I said all of those things were good for 10 years, but here's actually the truth. Uh, both of Naomi's daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, have struggled with infertility for the entirety of these 10 years. In the Old Testament, there wasn't a really a lot of like contraceptive. So if, it, if you weren't getting pregnant, it wasn't because you were choosing that. And so now you have a woman with two daughters-in-law entirely dependent on her who are grieving, who are grieving not only the loss of their sons, but the loss of their husband, but also grieving the loss of, uh, of these children that they could have had. And Naomi is grieving the loss of her husband and her sons and no grandchildren. They're dealing with infertility and they're in a land that is strange to them. They're in a land where they probably don't even entirely speak the language. They're foreigners and strangers. This, this text is surprising in so many ways. This text is surprising in ways that we fully can't come to grasp with because first, what's shocking is all of the terrible things that happen in such short sequence, right? What's terrible is the death and the death and the death. I mean, the book barely gets going and all of a sudden half the characters are dead. But what's even more surprising about this text is this. The men in the story are thrust off the stage and women take the center. There's this question that a lot of us have to ask about the Bible, which is, is this, is God good for women? Is the Bible good for women? Is a story that is mostly about men, how is it good for women? But here we have a surprising moment where the story of redemption, the story of how God is saving the world is placed into the hands of women and not just any women. See, there's another Old Testament book called Esther. Esther is a woman in power who takes her role in the story of redemption and uses her role as the queen's husband to, to save her people. But here are two or three women who are invited to, to hold on to the story of redemption just for this little bit, who are in abject poverty, whose circumstances couldn't be more dire. If you take nothing else from the sermon, take this, that it doesn't matter what your circumstances say to you, God is able to work in whatever hardship you find yourself in. 
against the backdrop of this need. And again, we can't fully grasp the terror that it is to be a single woman in a culture that treats women like dirt. Uh, you can't grasp the idea that she, Naomi isn't allowed to go get a job. Naomi can't own property without her husband. They can't own property without a man in their family. I mean, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth have hit the lowest of all possible lows in the ancient Near East. And yet in verse six, you read this. It says, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. You know, she didn't get this in a tweet or in a Facebook message, but the ancient Near East had its own kind of way of getting news out to people. And so this land that they left some 10, 15, 20 years before now has crops again. And this gets back to Naomi's ears uh, back in Moab. And so now Naomi, who is thrust into this impossible position of caring for these two women, when she has no income of her own, is now in an impossible situation faced by an impossible decision. Does she walk the wilderness road from Moab back to Bethlehem, where there are in fact lions and tigers and bears, where women are as a matter of course mistreated on the road, if you know what I mean, um, or do we stay in this land where we don't speak the language, where we are cultural outsiders and hope that we can scrape by for the rest of our lives? They're faced with an impossible decision. She, she makes Naomi, she's so brave. The women in Ruth are brave women. Uh, Naomi makes the impossible choice and goes with her daughter-in-law from Moab uh, back to Bethlehem. They brave the lions, the tigers and bears. They brave the robbers and the bandits that might be on the road. Because their hope is this. The Old Testament law demanded and commanded that widows and orphans be cared for. Israel was under a moral and legal obligation to care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow among them. The Moabites have no such law overseeing them. And so they're crossing their fingers, hoping that when they get back to Bethlehem, they might find somebody who is righteous enough to adhere to the law so that they might be able to feed themselves on the basis of, of other people's crops, which really gets into chapter two. Naomi takes her daughters home, or at least leads her daughters-in-law to believe she's taking them home. Look at verse eight. It says, it says, but on the way, on the way home, Naomi said to her two daughters, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for the kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. And she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. Verse 10, they said, no, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, well, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I'm too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. If you have a, your own Bible there, and even if it's not, underline that verse 13, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. See, Naomi just listed off all their options. Uh, they could go and try, go, they could go back to their own land and try to find husbands there and then Orpah and Ruth would be cared for. 
But the other option would be that Ruth, that, excuse me, Naomi could remarry and have kids, but then Orpah and Ruth would have to wait for those boys to grow up so they could marry them. I mean, she lists all these options. None of them are good. And so she says, you need to go back and you need to try to find a husband that'll take care of you and leave me to fend for myself in Bethlehem. And they don't want to do this. And she says something remarkable. She says to them, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord has raised his hand against me. And that sentence grabs you. That sentence grabs you. The Lord, has, the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. You see, there comes a point, and if you haven't hit it yet, just wait five more minutes because it's coming, and I'm sorry, but it is. But there comes a point when your faith reaches a boiling point. There comes a point when everything that you thought that you knew about God is entirely put into question. And let me be honest with you, it's not just one point, it's a series of points. By the end of our lives, we've walked through so many of these scenarios that we're barely limping our way into glory. And now Naomi and Ruth and Orpah are at this point in their faith. Naomi, a Jew who has always believed Yahweh's promises, says the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Things are that bad for her. And a lot of us are taken aback by this because it kind of feels like Naomi just said a swear word, right? Like, who talks about this to the Lord? And this is why when you read scholarly literature on Ruth, there's kind of a fork in the road. And one of the forks in the road says that Naomi is this nasty, embittered old woman who we should make sure that we never become. She's the woman in our neighborhood that like yelled at you when the ball rolled into her yard. Do you know what I'm saying? That they yelled when you were being too loud three doors down. That, that, this, that, that Naomi is a warning that we seek to avoid. This is only added later on in the chapter when she comes back to Bethlehem and says, don't call me Naomi because her name means lovely. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. And so scholars look at her and say, don't be like Naomi. And yet there's this other side of the fork that says, it's not that Naomi's suffering has made her less than what she used to be. It's actually made her more than what she used to be. That this honest statement to her daughters-in-law isn't a statement of unbelief, but is the cry of a faithful, trusting heart in overwhelming pain. Nomi's experience is a profound loss and profound grief are echoes of another story in the Old Testament. You see, there's this guy named Job, and Job, in a matter of a moment, loses everything. Uh, his wife is taken, his kids are taken, his houses are taken. This guy was loaded, so his houses were taken. His many, many sheep and goats and lambs and all of these things are taken from him. And Job is left with festering boils all over his body and his three best friends show up and they say, let's spend 40 chapters figuring out what thing you did wrong that makes God want to punish you like this. That's what the book of Job is all about. And Job, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of wrestling with God, says this, he has made me his target. His archers surround me, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul. You see, there's an echo here. There's an echo for Naomi who says that the Lord has made her bitter and gone out against her. What if Naomi, listen to me, what if Naomi isn't an embittered, nasty old woman who has lost all faith in God? What if, what if she is a faithful woman who still trusts Yahweh, but has the audacity and the honesty 
to tell the Lord how ticked she is. See, here's the worst part of my job. Right here, I walk into hospital rooms and there's a person sitting in the bed and I'm visiting them and they say things to me like, I know I'm not supposed to be angry at God. They say, I, I know I'm not supposed to doubt that he's good. And I, and I don't have like a badge. Like some, some clergy people have these badges they wear into hospitals. I'm, I, don't, I always forget to take the stuff I need to go get one. So I carry like a small Bible because I feel like, well, that says pastor, right? When you carry a Bible. And when they say like that, or when they say, I know that God won't give me any more than I could handle, I want to take that Bible and I want to beat the snot out of them, even though they are lying in a hospital bed sick. I don't care. Never, ever, ever say to me, as long as I'm your pastor, that I'm not allowed to get mad at God. Never, ever say to me, as your pastor, that I know I'm not supposed to doubt God's promises and never, ever, ever, ever say to me, I know that God doesn't give me more than I can handle because it appears to me that God gave Jesus more than he could handle, which is why he died. It appears to me that God gives us more than we could handle for the simple fact that we would need him. Guys, if God only gives me what I can handle, why do I need him? If God only gives me what I can handle, why, why would I even come here and thank him in worship and in giving and learn more about him so I can be ready for the ways that he wants to meet my need? And if God isn't a big enough God to handle my anger, then I need a new career. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you leave me forever? Psalm 88, the very end of it says, darkness is my only friend. See, what we need is to remember and to know that God is big enough for our honesty, that God is big enough for our anger, and that the cry of Naomi and that the cry of Job, no matter how bitter and how angry and how frustrated, is not a cry of less faith but more. In fact, I would argue, I would argue that people who say, I know that God uh, doesn't want me to be angry or mad at him actually have less faith, if we want to quantify it, than the people who actually do get up in his face. I'm trying to give you permission. I'm trying to make sure I build this into you so that when I come see you in the hospital one day, you're not saying to me, I know I'm not supposed to be angry at God. If anything, I want you to say, hey, I was just yelling at Jesus. Would you like to help? <laughs> and I would say, yes, that sounds fun. Let's do that for a minute. Because sometimes we need to lament. There's this echo for Naomi of this boldness. I, I've been reading a book, by the way. A lot of, if you want to know how much of this sermon is not original, you need to read a book called The Gospel of Ruth by a woman named Carolyn Custis James. Carolyn Custis James, her book is The Gospel of Ruth. Fascinating book, great Advent read. Carolyn Custis James says this, this. she says, listen to me on this, this is an amazing quote, I'll make sure it gets out on Facebook or, or, some, or that you, like a poster so you can buy it. Um, I, I just wanna make sure I'm still, can you hear me? Did I go away? Okay. Because this is the best quote of the whole sermon, so, and it's not even mine. She says, Christians are great pretenders. We tell ourselves it's not supposed to be this way for Christians, and so we resort to cover up. For the sake of the gospel, we don't want to let on, especially in front of a watching world, that things aren't working out so well. So we try to smooth things over for God, and we send in our best damage control team to deal with these embarrassing questions, and we polish up God's reputation. We feel it's our Christian duty to look our best. We can't afford to show our flaws, Let's give the world and each other the airbrushed version of ourselves as proof that the Christian life really works. She says, God won't participate in this kind of masquerade. 
If the Bible tells us anything, it's that the world is fraught with perils and hardships. Fraught is an SAT word meaning they're everywhere, right? The stories of Job and Ruth coax us to get down to the business of wrestling with God instead of chasing rainbows and to employ the same kind of brutal honesty as that they did if we dare. Wait, can I just... The stories of Job and Ruth coax us to get down to the business of wrestling with God instead of chasing rainbows and to employ the same kind of brutal honesty that they did if we dare. Naomi has this brutal honesty toward the Lord in this chapter. And it echoes Job. And it's not a demonstration of less faith, but of great faith. It is a cry for God to answer and to act and to move. Just like Job's was a cry for God to answer and to act and to move. And Job, hears his answer out of a thundercloud. And I think it's in like Job 42. It's a pretty good chapter to read. Naomi's answer comes from a very, very different source. Look with me at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. I mean, Naomi is laying down as much guilt as she can to get them to go back. I mean, she's doing everything, but Ruth refuses. It says Ruth was clinging to her. And clinging to her isn't like light side hug, right? It is like around her neck, buried into her chest, not letting go, iron grip. And in fact, I kind of imagine like Naomi is kind of talking somehow into like Ruth's shoulder, like saying, but really, you should probably go, right? And, and, and Ruth says, no. And look at, look at what she says in verse 16. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Whatever, wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And then she invokes the Lord's name. She doesn't just call him God. Anybody in the ancient Near East can call God, God, can call him El. Only the people of God call him Yahweh. And she says, may Yahweh punish me severely. That's what capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the sacred name. May Yahweh punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And so when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Guys, Ruth, man. Ruth is incredible. Ruth is this Moabite woman who looks at her mother-in-law and gives her what is essentially a wedding vow. I've been to weddings where these were the vows, right? Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And where you die, I will die and be buried. Ruth looks at her mother-in-law and says, you know what, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving till death do us part. And not only that, your God is gonna be my God. Yahweh will curse me if I leave you. And this moment is the moment where we would say Ruth steps across the line of faith. This is the moment when Ruth steps across the line of faith and becomes one of God's people. And here's what's crazy to me about Ruth. Ruth is silent this whole book. Whenever you're reading Old Testament literature, always pay attention to the first time a character talks because that's kind of them in a nutshell, right? So Adam, when he sees Eve for the first time, set, like says, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's really important theology, right? Ruth, the first time she opens her mouth, commits herself not only to her mother-in-law, but to her mother-in-law's God. Ruth is incredible. Ruth is so brave in this book. There's this interesting thing in Proverbs 31. Those of us raised in church, we've heard all about the Proverbs 31 woman. 
which isn't about a Proverbs 31 woman. It's about a woman of valor is really what the Hebrew word is, a woman of valor. And so Proverbs 31 is all about this woman of valor. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, the way they've arranged their books, Ruth follows Proverbs. And so you read this chapter all about a woman of valor and you turn the page as if the author is saying, and here's a story about a woman of valor. At every turn, Ruth is brave. At every turn, Ruth is faithful. At every turn, Ruth is hardworking. At every turn, Ruth is this woman, this Azer warrior, which we'll talk about that later too, that she keeps showing up and making the hard choices. And she looks at her mother-in-law and says, don't you go anywhere don't you think I'm going anywhere without you? Because where you die, I will die and I will be buried. And in that moment, in that moment, Naomi's cry for God to hear and move and act is answered. He doesn't resurrect her sons. She doesn't bring her husband back to life. She doesn't plant a a full-grown baby in, in Ruth's womb. Instead, when Naomi asks for God to move, when she asks God for a plan, God sends a friend. It's a Bob Goff quote. When we ask God for a plan, he usually sends a friend. And that's exactly what he does. He gives her Ruth. And so Naomi, realizing that she can't win this argument, kind of just shuts up and they keep going back to Bethlehem. Now, Steph is from a town of um, 700 people in South Dakota. And the first time we went, uh, we went to the Burns Cafe, which was this little restaurant, like maybe like a quarter of the size of this room, okay? have great coconut cream pie if you're interested in a 20-hour drive, but great pie. And um, we walk in, a town of 700 people, like not a lot going on, and uh, there's other people in the restaurant, and they just straight up stared at me. And you know sometimes you're looking at somebody and then they catch you looking at them and then you do like the, oh, I wasn't looking, right? Like, you know, like I saw them staring at me, they saw that I saw them staring at me, and they kept staring at me and they're pointing, and they're talking, not quietly, but saying, who's with Doc's daughter from out east, right? Because that was her name, Doc's daughter from out east, like, you know, 14 hours away in Chicago. I mean, and so when when Naomi rolls back into her hometown with one of her daughters-in-law after being gone for 10 or 15 years, you can imagine that just like there was excitement uh, in my wife's hometown, there was a lot of excitement in Bethlehem, this little tiny hamlet just south of Jerusalem. I mean, they roll in, and look at what it says Um, In verse 19, the two of them continued on their journey, and when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? They asked. Another story, this summer we went to my 10-year reunion. uh, We were with the Bylers because Jenna and I graduated together. And a lot of, I mean, Jenna's way better at like staying in touch with high school people. A lot of you graduate, like were in high school with me and you, I like don't even remember you. So like the rule was Jenna had to be like, hi, insert name here. So that I could then be like, hi, insert name here as if I didn't forget who they were. And um, you know, here's what I was doing. And Zach had his tenure last night. And maybe this is just me, but here's exactly what's happening inside of my head at the 10 year reunion. Ooh, boy, have you gained weight, right? Like, oh, that beard does not look good on you. Ooh, you look a little, you know, rode hard and put up wet over there. And uh, it's a thing my mom says. I don't know what that means, but it's kind of funny. I can guess, though. And, um, you, you know, you're looking them up and down. So here comes Naomi coming back into town, and they all look at her up and down, and they go, can this be Naomi? Guys, listen, it's been 15, maybe 20 years since they saw her, but she's lost her husband. She's lost both of her sons. They've walked with, through infertility with both of her kids. 
I mean, the wrinkles that she has gotten, and I'm not being, I'm not even being funny, the wrinkles that she has gotten, she looks haggard, she looks tired, she probably looks twice her age. And they say, could this be Naomi? And she says to them, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi, which again means lovely or beautiful. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? I mean, here's the deal. This is not another sign of Naomi's bitterness. This is a sign of Naomi kind of trying to start a new chapter. Whenever somebody's name changes in the Old Testament, it's actually fairly equivalent to baptism. It's kind of like we're turning the page on that and we're starting something new, okay? And so Naomi, by saying, call me Mara, is saying, we're just going to leave all of that crazy back in Moab. You can call me Mara now, because that's a more authentic way to how I feel. And we're going to begin this new chapter. But look at how it ends in verse 22. Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. And they arrived in Bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, there's some farmers in the room, but very few of us are. So here's, understand this, that this is really great news for Ruth and Naomi. Because the law of the Old Testament said that at harvest time, uh, th those who owned land were to leave the edges of their field unharvested. And that as they harvested, whatever they dropped, they had to leave there. So that poor people, orphans and widows, could come back through and follow them and, and have food to eat. I mean, Naomi and Ruth have returned to Bethlehem, which by the way, literally means house of bread, just in time for the harvest. And in the midst of the darkness of this chapter, there's just this tiniest little ray of hope. First, that the Lord had blessed his people so that there was food again, and that they got there just in the nick of time. And in Ruth 2, she'll begin to harvest, and we'll see what that does. And she gets a lot more than just food when she goes into the field. And yet, the action kind of just ends, right? And it still leaves Naomi without a husband. It leaves Ruth without a husband. It leaves Ruth without a child. It leaves Naomi without a grandchild. It leaves them homeless. It leaves them without food. It leaves them without any means of taking care of themselves. And so here's the question that we've not asked, right? And the question is, why are we preaching this book at Advent? Right, why, why is our lead up into Christmas this book? I mean, we'll see later that Boaz, this is a little bit of a romance story too, by the way, it has a little tiny feature of Hallmark romance comedy, just the tiniest bit. Boaz, who Ruth uh, meets later, will end up being her kinsman redeemer. Ruth will end up being one of David's relatives who will end up being one of Jesus' relatives. And that's even crazy because Ruth is a Gentile. Ruth is not part of the people of God. And the miracle of Christmas is that in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, right? And it's foreshadowing all of that. So maybe there's some theological themes that make it worthwhile. But, but here's really why we preach Ruth at Advent. Because Ruth and Advent begin on the same note. Ruth and Advent, the book of Ruth and the season of Advent begin in the same tone, this tone of sorrow and longing and need and desperation. 
Advent, as it's been practiced for centuries for the people of Jesus, has been meant to slow down the action on the play, right? It's like during the OSU game yesterday when those guys stick their head in that booth to watch the play in slow-mo. That's what Advent is for, is it's to slow down the action on the play. Because we live in a culture that throws Christmas trees out at Hobby Lobby on July 5th, right? And Christmas music has been on the radio since November 1st. And some of you have had your houses decorated since like Halloween, right? And that's okay, you do you, right? But there's this cultural tendency to rush to Christmas. And I can't help but wonder if the rush to Christmas isn't ultimately a running away from what hurts us. That if we wouldn't just like to spend four or five weeks pretending that there isn't emptiness, that there isn't sorrow, that there aren't things that hurt us, but here's the deal, that's not very honest, is it? You know, Ruth and Naomi, they get back into town and Naomi says, I left full, but I came back empty. Like 2017 began for some of you, full. And at the end of this year, like you're coming up empty. You know what I mean? Some of you, you began 2017 and you thought like, I don't think it can get worse than this. And oh wait, surprise, it can. And so that kind of hopefulness at the beginning of every year that you had last January, we're now like five weeks from the end of the year and you can't help but feel empty. You can't help but feel sad. And what I love about the book of Ruth is it invites us to give name to that. So as Ruth and Naomi wrestle with childlessness and grief, and sorrow that their families are half of what it once used to be and then some. It gives us the permission to go to God with what we need for with our emptiness and to invite him to move. It gives us the courage of Naomi. In the midst of our emptiness, we hear the words of Naomi saying, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his hand against me. And for as much as we're scandalized by her honesty, as much as some of us may think, well, I would never speak to God that way, there might be a tiny little part of us that is excited to find that over and over again in the pages of Scripture, there's permission to be mad. There's a, that, that God doesn't just permit, but he welcomes us to bring our emptiness to him. But the, what that requires is honesty. And so here's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if the gift of the book of Ruth, if, if what God wants to give you this Christmas isn't a happier Christmas, but a more honest one. I'm wondering if God doesn't want to give you a happier Christmas. I wonder if he wants to give you a more honest one. You know, there's that song, um, we need a little Christmas right this very minute, which, you know, all you need to do is modulate that into a minor key and that song gets kind of freaky, right? Like, we need Christmas right now, right? Like, or, or else, right? There's kind of a hidden, like, don't not give me Christmas. And uh, we do need a little Christmas. Um, but we don't need a Christmas where we buy tons of stuff, more, more than we need to, so that maybe when we buy all this stuff, it'll make our feelings of sorrow go away. We don't need to drown ourselves in eggnog and Baileys just to like make the numb, bring on the numb feeling. Maybe what we need is a little bit of Christmas in the sense that when Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, the house of bread, they didn't know that much later that born in that town would be a baby whose name would be Emmanuel. 
whose name means God is with us. And maybe a more honest Christmas gives us a fuller experience in the presence of God, a God who welcomes our emptiness, uh, a God who welcomes and desires to, and sees our needs, and though he doesn't go rushing to meet them, sits with us in it. The God who, who says this to us, he says, do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. And when you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burnt up. The flames will not consume you for I am Yahweh, your God. I am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let's pray. God, we um, just got to name our emptiness to you today. And uh, whatever that is, we just offer it up to you. And uh, God, we, we wait, but do, we do not wait as those without hope. And so, God, we, te- we pray that you would teach us in that honest space that we craft with you, that we would, you would teach us that you welcome our honesty, that you would teach us that you welcome our anger. And then in that honest place, we really do have friendship and relationship with you. Jesus, I pray for these ones who I just love in ways that words cannot fully capture, that you would be with them, that you would be their Emmanuel this Christmas, that you'd be with them even in the sorrowful things and in the empty things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.